You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Praise be Jesus Christ. In this segment of our introductory course to Catholic moral theology, we're going to look at the role that is played in the moral life by the magisterium of the Catholic Church. Now, the magisterium refers to the College of Bishops, refers to all of those men who have been ordained as successors to our Lord's Apostles, who share a common ministry within the Church under the headship of His Holy Father, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. Now, we have said that Catholic moral teaching has made use of the understanding of the natural law. That is, that we are capable of looking at the nature of the human person to see that there are certain objective criteria for good moral behavior that anyone can recognize and see. Again, as Paul said, In Romans, even those without the law, the written law, are without excuse because God has written the law upon their hearts. But we also know the difficulty, and God knows our difficulty, in understanding the moral law simply as it is written upon our hearts. And therefore, God has also revealed to us the truths that we could come to know with difficulty by reflecting upon and studying the human person. God has revealed certain things to us, that marriage, for example, is indissoluble, that we ought never not only to kill another person, but even to hate another person. So revelation has helped to clarify the moral life for us, because God, after all, is the one who created us, and he knows what will bring us to perfection. Now, God's revelation is contained in Scripture, and we can see there what he wants for us and what his plans are for us. But we also know that there are various interpretations to Scripture. Not everyone interprets Scripture the same way. In fact, we wouldn't have so many different Christian bodies were the words of God in the Scriptures abundantly clear to everyone. I remember one time attending a national conference of the National Association of Evangelicals. And at this conference, they had a big banner across the front of the stage, and it said, The Holy Bible our infallible guide. Well, I was there manning a a pro-life booth. I was there as a Catholic. But at one point, I entered into a discussion with one of the men who had organized the conference. And I have some relatives who are Protestants. And so I asked the man if this particular Protestant group was a member of the National Association of Evangelicals. He said, oh, no, it's not. And I said, well, why not? Well, he said, do you know they take this passage from the Gospel of Luke, and he cited the passage, and they interpret it in this way. And that doesn't agree with the proper understanding of Scripture. And I said, oh, I I didn't realize that. So I asked if another Protestant group were members of the National Association of Evangelicals, and he said, no, no, they're not either. And I said, why is that? Well, he said, they have this understanding with regard to our Lord's return, and obviously this isn't the way in which Scripture tells us it will occur, and so no, they're not members of our association either. Well, I couldn't contain myself, but I looked at the banner across the stage that said, The Holy Bible, Our Infallible Guide. And I said, It seems to me that what you need is an infallible interpreter of your infallible guide. 
Now, we as Catholics believe that God has left to us in Scripture all that is necessary for our salvation. He has revealed this to us, and He has preserved it for us in the words of the Scriptures themselves. But we have to have the certitude of the interpretation of Scripture so that we can guide our lives with complete certitude and be pleasing to God. The Second Vatican Council had written in its conciliar decree on Revelation Dei Verbum, but the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, because God's revelation lives within our tradition as well, this task has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Here in the United States, we have a constitution, and that constitution orders our life together as citizens, and yet we know that there are various interpretations of the constitution. So some people may think that a given law is in conformity with the provisions of the constitution, and other people think it's not, that it violates some citizens' constitutional rights. And so the only way in which these questions can be resolved is to turn to some higher authority to interpret what the Constitution means, or I should say a living authority at least, because the Constitution is written and it's unchanging, so you have to have some body of individuals to interpret the Constitution. And of course, in the United States, that body is called the Supreme Court. So the fact that the Catholic Church should have a body of experts to interpret the scripture shouldn't be surprising even on the natural level. Even on the natural level, we should see that some mechanism like this would be necessary for the interpretation of the founding document of the Christian religion, of the Catholic faith. But of course, we believe that the bishops don't constitute simply a natural human institution. We believe that they have been endowed with divine authority so that God himself assists them in the interpretation of Scripture for our good. So if we're going to understand that role of the bishops, we have to consider the place of authority within the church. Authority. We have to see, first of all, that persons, not things, carry authority. The Scripture has authority because it manifests and reveals the mind of God himself, who is the ultimate authority. If we even look to the word itself, authority, and break it down, we see that it refers to an author. The one who knows his work better than anyone else is the author of the work. The one who can interpret the work that he has written obviously is the author of it. Now, since God is the author of all things and God is the author of Scripture, it's understandable that we would turn to God and trust His authority. We were talking earlier about the virtue of faith that God gives us, which is this capacity of our minds to give intellectual assent to truths which surpass, go beyond, the natural powers of our minds. So if we have faith, we turn to and believe those things which God has told us. Persons bear authority not things. Now, we see in Jesus Christ that he bears 
the authority of God in his very person because, after all, he is God. The fullness of the divinity resides in Jesus Christ, as St. Paul has told us. And Scripture is full of testimony to this fact. You remember the story of the men bringing a paralytic to our Lord. The man was paralyzed. He couldn't walk. And his friends go to great lengths to bring this man to Jesus. And as he is laid before Jesus to be healed, Jesus turns to the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, no sooner does he say that than there's great murmuring in the crowd. And those individuals who are particularly well-trained in theology and in scriptures were incensed. And they murmured among themselves, this man blasphemes. No one can forgive sin but God himself. Because as we were saying before, an act of immorality may be an act against ourselves, our own good, or an act against a neighbor, but a sin is an act against God. I can't get into a fight with my friend Joe and give him a sock in the jaw and then want to be made up with Joe and go over to Fred and say, oh, Fred, would you please forgive me for socking Joe on the chin? I mean, the only way I can be reconciled with Joe is to go to him and say, I'm sorry I struck you. I'm sorry I got so angry. Will you forgive me? So again, it makes even natural sense that we would turn to God in order to be forgiven for the offenses which we have committed against him. Now, there's a way in which the religious leaders of our Lord's day were correct when they said this man blasphemes. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knows what they are saying. And he turns to them and he says, which is easier? For me to stand here and say, your sins are forgiven, or to say to this paralytic who has never walked, you are healed, get up your bed, go home. Walk and go home. Well, obviously anybody can say your sins are forgiven and who can pass judgment on it? But Jesus says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, and he turned to the paralytic, I say to you, take up your bed and walk. And the man took up his bed and walked. Now the thing that is so stupendous about that story, that is so exciting about it, is not the fact that the man was healed of his crippled condition, but rather that through that healing, Jesus proved that he indeed did have the authority and the power to forgive sins, that the power of God resided in him, and he was able to bring about this reconciliation. Now, our Lord gathered his apostles after his resurrection, and he told them, all authority has been given to me both in heaven and on earth, and he gives them the great commission. Go you therefore, Teach and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Full authority has been given to me both in heaven and earth, Jesus says. Go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus, in his person, passes on this divine authority to his apostles to continue his work in the world, to go forward and to teach, and to heal, and to govern. You remember that our Lord also appeared to his apostles in the upper room after his resurrection. And when he appeared to them, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain are retained. Now Jesus took his authority, which was his divine authority, and he placed it into the hands of men so that they could carry on his ministry. 
as I've said before. He said to his apostles, whoever receives you receives me. He said to his apostles, whoever hears you hears me. Whoever despises you despises me, and whoever despises me despises him who sent me. We have to see that the authority which the bishops of the church exercise on our behalf is an authority which has been given to them by Jesus Christ himself, that they exercise on his behalf for our good, both in the sacramental and in the moral life. Now, we've been talking about the divine authority, which God gave into the hands of the apostles and then of their successors, the bishops of the Catholic Church, in order for the church to be able to lead the faithful into all truth. The scriptures refer to the church as the pillar and bulwark of truth. It is the truth to which we must conform ourselves if we are to lead a wholesome life pleasing to God. But you know, there can be differences that arise even among men who have been given authority. There always has to be a leader among any group of men for the sake of good order. There is always some leader, whether you're talking about a democratic society where the leader is elected, whether you're talking about a society in which the leadership is passed on to the oldest son as in a constitutional monarchy or the oldest legitimate heir. And we see that the church corresponds to the natural order of things as well. One of the reasons we know that the church must be the true church is because the supernatural life of the church reflects the natural order of things as well. And as we might expect, there is a leader within the College of Bishops who provides leadership to them, and that is, of course, the successor to St. Peter. When Peter made his great profession of faith to our Lord, when Jesus said to him at Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? And the apostles were giving all the various opinions. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And our Lord said, flesh and blood did not give this to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven, you are the rock. And upon this rock I will build my church. And I entrust to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And he passed on to him at that time also the power to bind and to loose with regard to men's sins. And we know that after our Lord's resurrection, he appeared to Peter on one occasion and recalled the fact that Peter had betrayed our Lord. And our Lord turns to Peter and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter responds, you know that I love you. At which Jesus said, feed my lambs. Now, you know that Peter had denied our Lord three times before his crucifixion. And we see here Peter now being provided with the opportunity of making three affirmations of faith to sort of balance out that betrayal that he one time had committed. A second time, Jesus puts this question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know that I love you. Jesus replied, tend my sheep. A third time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he had asked the third time, do you love me? So he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know well that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. If Peter was to manifest his love of Jesus 
He was to do so by tending our Lord's sheep, by tending our Lord's lambs. Feed my sheep, tend my flock. And this is the ministry which has been entrusted into the hands of St. Peter and his successors, the Bishop of Rome. The Second Vatican Council tells us in the dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium, that, quote, Jesus willed that the apostles' successors, the bishops, namely, should be the shepherds in his church until the end of the world, in order that the episcopate itself, that is the college of bishops, however, might be one and undivided, he put Peter at the head of the other apostles, and in him he set up a lasting and visible source and foundation of the unity both of faith and of communion. This teaching concerning the institution, the permanence, the nature and import of the sacred primacy of the Roman pontiff and his infallible office, the sacred synod proposes anew, that is the Second Vatican Council, proposes anew to be firmly believed by all the faithful. God in his goodness entrusted to men on earth divine power to interpret the moral law, to interpret the scriptures, to guide and to lead us into all truth. As I've said, it's natural that there should be some kind of ultimate authority here, even in the natural order. In fact, we can say that it doesn't even make sense that God would have gone to the lengths to which he did in order to save us. It wouldn't have made any sense for God to have gone to the great lengths to which he went in order to reveal to us what the truth is, and then not to have provided some mechanism to resolve disputes which almost necessarily would have arisen among his followers. In other words, it just doesn't make any sense that God would have established the church for our good without providing it with some kind of authoritative body which would pass judgment on questions of faith but also on questions of morality of what we must not only believe in order to be saved, but also what we must do in order to be saved. So there's actually a way in which we can say it's perfectly reasonable that there would be this authoritative body within the church. And this body is entrusted with God's authority. St. Augustine himself said, I would not believe the gospel unless I were impelled thereto by the authority of the Catholic Church. I said earlier that the written word alone doesn't have authority. Its authority is derived from the authority of the author, and God is the author of scriptures. And it was the church itself, the bishops, who determined which books were divinely inspired and were sure and certain guides for the life of faith and the life of morality. So we can trust the scriptures, we can trust those who are to interpret the scriptures on our behalf. Now, a question has arisen in our latter day, in recent times, as to whether or not the church really does have the authority to give us guidance in the area of morality. And there are some revisionists, some theologians, who go so far as to say that the church has never proposed any moral doctrine to us to believe infallibly, that is, with the full assurance of faith. But we must see 
that we have a moral obligation to respond to God's truth, and we have a moral obligation to respond to those who impart to us God's truth. Now, there are various ways in which we respond to the teachings of the church. We have to say that if a doctrine is proposed to us as coming from God himself, that we are morally bound to give to that doctrine the assent of faith, what's known as the ascensus fidei. We must believe what has been proposed as true without harboring any shadow of doubt whatsoever because the one who is proposing this teaching is actually God himself. So we give the assent of faith to an infallible teaching of the church. And it's infallible because we believe that it's irreformable and that it's necessary to believe this teaching in order to be saved. So obviously, we have a moral obligation to ourselves to do everything necessary to attain salvation. We have a moral obligation vis-a-vis -vis our relationship with God to respond to him because he is the truth. If he speaks the truth, we must respond to that truth. But we find that sometimes there is confusion about what has been infallibly taught. And so there's confusion about the doctrines to which we are supposed to give this assent of faith. Now, we have to say that anything that has been infallibly taught by the church, we are morally bound to give the assent of faith. But there's confusion today as to how the church teaches infallibly. Some will say, some of these revisionists again, that the church teaches infallibly only through an ex cathedra pronouncement of the pope. That is, when the pope is sitting upon the chair of St. Peter. Ex cathedra means from the chair. And when the Pope, symbolically as it were, sits upon the chair of Peter, because traditionally, historically, classically, the teaching position was sitting down. It was a sign of authority. The teacher would sit and the students themselves either would stand around or be sitting below him. So that when the Pope would teach from the chair, he would be proposing something to be infallibly true, irreformable, and we would have the obligation to assent to that. But actually, in truth, the church teaches that there are other ways in which infallible propositions are put forth for our acceptance. It is not only through ex cathedra pronouncements on the part of the pope. It is also done through the solemn pronouncements of ecumenical councils. This is another way in which the church teaches solemnly and infallibly, through solemn definitions of ecumenical councils and through solemn definitions ex cathedra by the Pope. Now, if either in those two ways something is proposed for our belief, then we must assent to it. However, there is another way in which the church teaches infallibly. And unfortunately, many people overlook, many theologians even today, overlook this teaching of the church which we find articulated even in the documents of the Second Vatican Council. The Church teaches infallibly not only through the extraordinary means of ex cathedra pronouncements of the Pope and solemn pronouncements of ecumenical councils. The Church also teaches infallibly through the ordinary exercise of its magisterium. It's obvious that we're morally bound to accept the truth, and we're morally bound to accept the truth which God tells us about himself and about ourselves. And the church has been given the authority to interpret the scriptures for us so that we can know exactly what the truth is with regard to the moral life. 
And we were saying that when the church teaches infallibly, that is, when the church teaches that something is certainly true and necessary for our salvation, then we are morally bound to accept it. Now, the way in which the church does this is various, but the one that most people are familiar with are ex-cathedra pronouncements by the Pope and also solemn definitions by church councils, ecumenical councils. However, we also find that there is an ordinary exercise of the infallible magisterium of the church. And again, we read in Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution of the church, Lumen Gentium 25, the following. Although the bishops, taken individually, do not enjoy the privilege of infallibility, they do, however, proclaim infallibly the doctrine of Christ on the following conditions. Namely, when, even though dispersed throughout the world, but preserving for all that amongst themselves and with Peter's successor the bond of communion, in their authoritative teaching concerning matters of faith and morals, they are in agreement that a particular teaching is to be held definitively and absolutely. Now, there we have in that quotation a picture of the bishops not gathered in an ecumenical council. We have a picture of the Pope not speaking individually on his own authority from the chair of Peter. But we have the bishops dispersed throughout the world teaching the same thing that the Pope himself is teaching and that the other bishops are teaching. And they are doing so authoritatively about a matter of faith or morals, and they are agreement among themselves that a particular teaching is to be held definitively and absolutely. In other words, there can be no compromise on this particular teaching. Now, it must be said that most of the infallible teaching of the church to which we assent is taught ordinarily by the bishops filled with the Holy Spirit, living in union with the other bishops of the world and in union with the head of the College of Bishops, the Pope himself, teach the elements of the moral life, of the life of faith. It would be a terrible restriction upon the life of the church and upon that of individual Catholics if everything we believe or we're not bound to believe anything unless the church, the bishops had gathered in council and made some kind of solemn pronouncement or the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, had gone to the trouble of making an ex-Catholic pronouncement. Usually that is done, these extraordinary measures are used when there is some dispute within the church that has to be resolved, okay, that has to be clarified. And until that occurs, then the ordinary way in which God's saving truths are taught is simply by the bishops teaching in union with one another and with the Pope. Now, the Council also taught us that this infallibility belongs in a special way to the Pope by virtue of his office. We read again in Lumen Gentium 25, this infallibility, however, with which the divine Redeemer wished to endow his church for our good in defining doctrine pertaining to faith and morals is coextensive with the deposit of revelation, which must be religiously guarded and loyally and courageously expounded. 
the Roman pontiff, head of the College of Bishops, enjoys this infallibility in virtue of his office. In other words, this charism, this gift, was given in a unique way to the head of the College of Bishops because of the special charge that our Lord gave to him, gave to St. Peter, this charge to feed his sheep and to tend his lambs and to look over his flock. Now, when it comes to the authority of the teachers of the church, they sometimes propose to us propositions for belief, articles of belief, which may not be presented infallibly, but are presented authoritatively. Now, this has come to constitute an area of contention and confusion in the contemporary church as well. There are those who say that the Catholic Church has never taught anything in the area of morality infallibly because no ecumenical council or no ex cathedra pronouncement of a pope has ever specifically addressed a moral issue. However, the documents of the Second Vatican Council tell us that even if something has not been infallibly taught but has only been authoritatively taught, we still have to assent to it. See, these theologians that deny that there has been any moral teaching which has been infallibly taught by the church, these theologians will maintain that they have a right to dissent from teachings which are merely authoritative but not infallible and that they don't have to give assent to those teachings which are not infallibly taught. However, these theologians that talk like this, that think like this, do not have the spirit of the Second Vatican Council. They do not think with the mind of the Second Vatican Council. Because we read again in Lumen Gentium that in matters of faith and morals, the bishops speak in the name of Christ, and the faithful are to accept their teaching and are to adhere to it with a religious assent of soul. This religious submission of mind must be shown in a special way to the authentic teaching authority of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. That is, it must be shown in such a way that his supreme magisterium is acknowledged with reverence the judgments made by him are sincerely adhered to according to his manifest mind and will. So we see here that the Second Vatican Council is telling us that if a doctrine is put forth not infallibly but authoritatively, the kind of assent we owe to it is not the assensus fidei, the assent of faith, which is a particular type of assent that we give to a doctrine which is absolutely irreformable but we are still required to give an assent, the assensus religiosus, the religious assent of soul, that there is to be a religious submission of mind even to non-infallible authoritative teachings on the part of the magisterium and on the part of the Holy Father. We see here in the teachings of the Second Vatican Council itself that there is simply no provision within Catholic teaching for the kind of public dissent from authoritative teaching that has been proposed by the magisterium since the close of the council. Now we know that a lot of this difficulty has arisen from the controversy surrounding the issuance of the Immanevite in 1968 which had to do with the moral regulation of births and which condemned contraception as being 
immoral and beneath human dignity. Many Catholics didn't like that teaching. And so over time, they have come to develop a doctrine which they insist allows them to dissent from that encyclical teaching because it wasn't put forth as infallible dogma, but rather it was simply put forth as authoritative teaching. But you can see from the quotations I've already given you from the Second Vatican Council that there simply is no provision for that kind of public dissent. In fact, the tradition tells us that we are to have an obsequious silence, a silencium obsequium, about teachings to which we feel we can't give our full assent even if they are not infallibly proposed to us. So I would urge you to read section 25 of Lumen Gentium to clarify a lot of these issues in your own mind and be able to turn your friends to that portion of the documents of the Second Vatican Council if this question comes up about the kind of assent that we are to give to authoritative but non-infallible teachings. Now, the question is also raised as to whether or not the church has taught anything at all infallibly in the area of morality. Now, I'd already given you the definition of the ordinary exercise of the infallible magisterium of the church, which we found again in Lumen Gentium, that says if the bishops have taught the same thing, even dispersed throughout the world, and have taught this in union with the Holy Father, and it is a doctrine regarding faith or morals, and it is taught definitively and absolutely, and we are to adhere to it as such. That's the explanation of the ordinary exercise of the church's infallible magisterium. There are those who say that the teaching on contraception, for example, and indeed most of the moral teachings of the church, have been taught infallibly under the exercise of the ordinary magisterium of the church. That there has never been a time, for example, when a bishop of Rome has taught that it would be morally licit to practice contraception. There has never been a time when the bishops of the church have suggested that it would be morally licit to practice contraception. Now, this is a debated question in the church today. As I say, there are those who maintain that the church's teaching here is infallible and requires virtually an assent of faith because it's been so definitively put forth for so long. But even those who don't accept the church's teaching on contraception as infallible, they would have to accept it as authoritative and they would have to accept it with this religious assent uh, of mind and of will if they are to see that they are pleasing in God's sight. The one thing about which we can have complete certitude is that we will never be displeasing to God if we accept the teachings of the magisterium. I'm not talking about what might be referred to as disciplinary measures on the part of the magisterium. Bishops saying that we are to kneel or to stand at this point in the Mass. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about clear teachings of the Church, which may be authoritative but not infallible. We can never run the fear of being displeasing to God if we accept those teachings because it would be reflective of our desire to love God and to show forth that willing submission to Him as our Father and as the source of all truth. God has given to His people the magisterium, the teaching body within the church to lead us into all truth and to provide us with the assurance that we need in both faith and morals in order to lead a life that is pleasing to him. Now, the church teaches that the magisterium has this ability to interpret not only the scriptures, but even the natural moral law. Because after all, God is the author 
of nature as well as the revealed word of Scripture. And so we can trust the bishops to clarify, to interpret, and to apply even the teachings of the natural moral law. Now, again, we still have to face this charge that is made by some theologians, some revisionists, if you will, that the church doesn't propose anything infallible for us in the area of morality when it comes to specific norms. They will say, yes, the church teaches infallibly when it says that we are to pursue good and avoid evil. The church teaches infallibly when it says that we are always to act in a loving way. But the church has never proposed anything infallibly when it comes to specific moral norms, when it comes to concrete kinds of actions that we ought to do or not do. Of course, it would be kind of silly, really, if you think of what we are as human beings, for the church to propose things for us in the area of morality that were simply abstract, that were simply formal, that is, do good or do things lovingly because we don't do things lovingly in the abstract. We love this person, or we don't love this person. We aren't abstract realities. We are concrete, historical bodies. And so it would almost be pointless for the church to provide us only these formal, abstract kinds of directives, if you will, for the moral life. God himself is in no way abstract, and indeed there is a way in which we can say he is no longer just spirit because the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and became a human being, became Jesus Christ. We read in Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world, section 22, in reality it is only in the mystery of the word made flesh that the mystery of man truly becomes clear. Now see, the Word was made flesh so that the mind of God might be made known in Jesus Christ. But Christ was a concrete individual human being and we can look to him if we would come to understand the mystery which is man himself. Jesus Christ is perfect God and perfect man, but he reveals to us the mystery of our own human nature. If we would know how we are to act, we would look to Jesus Christ, who didn't simply act in some abstract sense. He didn't just act in a loving way. He did act in a loving way, but he acted in a loving way by teaching concrete truths, by healing this cripple, by healing this blind man, by restoring life to Jairus' daughter. He actually did concrete actions in the concrete world, and this is the way in which we are to lead the moral life. We can't lead it in some kind of abstract way. Now, some of these theologians will go so far as to say even the concrete norms contained in the Ten Commandments aren't concrete enough for us. For example, let's say there is the commandment against adultery but it doesn't say anything about sodomy, it doesn't say anything about fornication, and therefore somehow there might be a way in which these acts could be possible if they were done in a loving sort of way. But the church has always taken the Ten Commandments as expressive of concrete moral norms for us. In other words, there are certain kinds of actions which simply may never be done without doing violence to ourselves and to other people. And the commandments are understood by the church to include also other acts which would 
manifest this injustice or this unloving attitude as is expressed in this particular commandment of the church. In other words, we have to look at the Ten Commandments and their teaching on specific moral norms as these have been understood within the tradition of the church. For example, the commandment against do no murder has also been understood by the church to apply to abortion, for example, or to apply to killing somebody in the course of a robbery, or has applied to killing non-combatants in warfare, just as the commandment against adultery has been seen to be applied against any specific act which would do violence to the purposes for which God has given us our sexuality. And so an act of sodomy or an act of fornication would also be seen as a violation of the gift that God has given us in our sexuality and also of the goods toward which that sexuality is ordered. We see that the church is very specific about certain kinds of acts and those moral theologians who suggest that the church has never infallibly, through its ordinary magisterium, taught specific moral norms as being always wrong simply are not thinking with the mind of the Second Vatican Council. We read, again in the document Gaudium et Space, section 27, that the importance of holding to specific moral norms can be seen in the love we have for others. That in the violation of a specific moral norm, in the violation of a moral absolute, there's always some violation of a human good. And we have our value and our goodness because we have been created in the image and likeness of God. And that Jesus Christ, in taking our flesh upon him, now comes to share in our humanity so that an act of violence against any human being actually constitutes an act of violence against Jesus Christ himself who has come to share in our humanity. And the council quotes our Lord as saying, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And this is why we reach out in love toward others, because it's not a matter of this abstract sense of love. It's love concretized in this man and in this woman. As Mother Teresa says, she doesn't love mankind in general. She loves this man and this woman and this child. And in loving this man, this woman, and this child, as she gives them a cup of water, she cares for them, she will say, I am taking Christ in my arms. She's loving Christ in her actions to these specific human beings. So those who would deny that the church has taught that there are specific acts which may never be done simply are not thinking with the mind of the Second Vatican Council, as I have said before. And in section 27, Gaudium et Space, we read of these crimes against humanity which simply cannot be ever done regardless of the circumstances. The varieties of crimes are numerous. All offenses against life itself, such as murder, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, and willful suicide. Now those are quite specific acts that are mentioned by this council of the church. Also, all violations of the integrity of the human person, such as mutilation, physical and mental torture, undue psychological pressures, very specific concrete acts here. And it goes on. All offenses against human dignity, 
such as forcing people to live in subhuman living conditions, arbitrary imprisonment, deportation, slavery, prostitution, the selling of men and women and children, degrading working conditions where men are treated as mere tools for profit rather than free and responsible persons. All these and the like are criminal. They poison civilization and they debase the perpetrators more than the victims and militate against the honor of the Creator. So much so for the Second Vatican Council. Most of the moral norms which guide our lives have been taught infallibly by the church and are binding upon us and can be seen by the way in which the church has understood the teachings of God himself in the Ten Commandments, or as our Holy Father likes to call them, the Ten Words, the Ten Instructions that lead us into a moral life and help us to avoid error and sin and immorality. Now, often these theologians will admit, because it's so clearly taught within the church, that the church has the power to teach infallibly when it comes to matters of faith. It's very odd indeed that these theologians would preclude from the church uh, that power also to teach in the area of morals. C.S. Lewis was one time asked, you know, what saves us, faith or morals? Believing correctly or living correctly? And C.S. Lewis said both. He said, Faith and morals are like the two blades of a scissor that are both necessary to cut a sheet of paper. You can't say which blade of the scissors is cutting the paper or even which blade of the scissors is more important than the other blade. You can't cut the paper without both of them. We can't live the full life that God wants for us unless we believe properly and unless we live properly. We can't split the moral life of the Christian. The Christian who believes in God and loves Jesus Christ, will believe what God tells him about sexual morality, for example, will live in such a way that he will never violate another person because he finds Jesus Christ in that other person. Ours is a life of integrity and wholeness in which both faith and morality work together to bring us to God, to bring us to fullness of our human life and to bring us into the joy of life with one another as we journey toward heaven and the home that God has prepared for us. So we see here in our reflections today the importance of the magisterium of the Catholic Church to lead us into all truth in the area of morality, both with regard to the Christian life itself and even to the interpretation of the natural moral law. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.